Tavis Smiley, and I'm delighted to have you with us today, particularly and especially in this hour that I've been looking forward to with two brilliant sisters who will um, represent in their own ways. On the B side of this hour, Dr. Mario Bouquet on breaking the cycle of generational trauma, illuminating pathways to resilience and reclaiming personal narratives. She was on this program the other day, and as you may recall, in the midst of that conversation, the news broke that Dexter Scott King had died at the age of 62 from prostate cancer, and so we had to interrupt that dialogue. But I promised her and I promised you to get her back on this program uh, to complete uh, that conversation. So Dr. Bouquet joins us on the backside of this hour. And I thanked her for her patience the other day when that uh, news broke that I'm still wrestling with, uh, and our thoughts and prayers remain with the King family. But I'm delighted to commence this hour with Harvard scholar turned Peabody and Emmy-winning journalist Antonia Hilton on her new book, her provocative new book, Riveting. It's called Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. In the book, Antonia traces the legacy of slavery to the treatment of black people's bodies and minds in our current mental health care system. She tells the history of Crownsville Hospital, Crownsville Hospital, one of the uh, last segregated asylums in this country. The story is beyond arresting, and I am delighted to welcome Antonia Hilton to this program. Antonia, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Tavis. No, it's my great delight to have you on. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, let me start uh, with the backstory here. I'm always fascinated by people who do this kind of work um, uh, as to why and how they were pulled into this particular space. It is, it's a powerful story. But let me just start by asking, uh, again, that broad question of how and why this story for you. Mm, you know, I come from a very big black family. I'm one of seven kids. I have 20-something cousins, and we are all very tight. But growing up, for me and my siblings at least, we felt like the one issue, one topic everyone really struggled to talk about was our emotions and our mental health. Especially for my parents and some of my elders in my family, it was completely off limits. And there was this desire among the younger generation in our family to talk about these things, to try to better understand our family history, our family secrets. So when I became a college freshman and I got the opportunity to study history, I fell in love with the history of psychiatry. And specifically, I wanted to understand what has happened to Black families, Black communities in these systems. And I think I was drawn to that in part because I knew that I had a great-grandfather who was sent to an institution not unlike Crownsville, that I have other relatives who had spent time being locked away for mental health care crises. And that's an experience that I think a lot of Black families have, that they know they have a loved one who suffered, but there's that stigma, that shame. And I wanted to study it, and I wanted to find a way to talk about it so that our families would have an understanding of why the system is this way. And, you know, what I've found in doing this work over the last 10 years, Tavis, is that it's given me a whole new level of compassion and understanding for why some of the generations in my family struggle to talk about these issues. Because when you see the history up close and you see just how badly black people have been treated by psychiatry, you truly understand why people have stayed away, why they, they don't raise their hand, why they don't want to come to these hospitals. It all starts to make sense. Mm. To the latter part of your comment, um, what, in fact, broadly speaking, we'll get to Crownsville specifically in a moment here, Antonia, but broadly speaking, what has happened, uh, to use your phrase, to black families in these institutions? Well, really one of two things. 
either they have no access to these institutions at all, they were barred from them, told they can't afford them, and completely excluded by a field that is majority white still to this day. And they, you know, when they try to find providers who look like them or who care about their communities, no matter if you're in a rural area or an urban area, black patients say they have the same experiences. They're shut out and they can't find people who really care about them. Or on the flip side, they do get access to these systems. They do get inside these hospitals and historically have been abused by them, used by science, subjected to experimentation without their consent, not told the truth by the doctors, mostly white again, who were taking care of them historically, and discarded on wards that were overcrowded and filthy and not up to par with what state governments like Maryland, where this book takes place. Mm -hmm. But there were institutions like this all over the country, so it's not just Maryland. And they were left there for decades in many cases with no attempt at care at all. Um, So, you know, this book takes you from the very beginning of the darkest days in the early 20th century. The hospital's founded in 1911, but it didn't even close until 2004. And so it's a it's like a century long history there. And so this is not distant stuff. This is living history. We were all alive when that hospital closed. And I think people really need to sit with that. There, there's 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 been great conversation as you well know about uh, Black America's skittishness. That's that's one word I could use any number of others, uh, but our uh, our 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 fear uh, uh, of having conversations about mental health. Uh, that conversation is as real as rain, but it raises the obvious question for me, given what you have just said and what's in this text, which we'll dive into a bit more in a moment, why any black family would want to institutionalize a loved one. The book is called Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Everybody's talking about it, and we're talking about it right now with Antonia Hilton on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis, Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Antonia Hilton, who's author of the new book, Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Um, I want to make the most of our time. I wish we had uh, hours, Antonia. We do not. So let me just uh, ask you to tell me and tell us about Crownsville State Hospital, formerly Maryland's Hospital for the Negro Insane. Crownsville opened in 1911, but when it opened, the patients weren't brought to a hospital ward. The state of Maryland, Tavis, marched at first 12 black men into the heart of a forest in Anne Arundel County and forced them to build this hospital, this institution that still stands to this day in the center of the state of Maryland. And they had to move railways. They had to clear forests. They had to pour a foundation and concrete and work alongside electricians and contractors and build themselves a hospital before they could even become the patients and get the therapy that they were supposed to receive. Something that never happened to any white patients in the state of Maryland. And from my research, I can't find another example of that happening to a group in the United States. And so I think that tells you very early on in its history how the state viewed Black people and how deserving they were of real mental health care. And even after the patients finished constructing themselves an asylum, they're forced, as I show in my reporting and in the book, to enter a cycle of free labor. And this is, you know, decades after emancipation, but they basically end up back in a plantation structure where all white staff members force them to run a massive 
highly productive farm where they have to run the laundry, run the morgue, run the kitchen, and they're serving the white staffers food, not necessarily the other way around. And so you see this place, and in the early photographs, it really looks more like a slave plantation than a hospital. It isn't until the 50s and 60s, after integration, the state is forced to allow Black people to come to work there for the first time, that real change starts to happen. And that's because Black people start treating their own, their neighbors. I mean, literally, patients who were their friends when they were kids and rode the bus to school with them, and they start to bring them clothes because they had been refused clothes by white staff. They start to help them wash their hair because they hadn't been properly bathed in years. And they start to investigate their mistreatment and reconnect them with family members so that they can get out of the asylum. And it's those small acts of kindness that really start to transform the place. And so it's this really fascinating story that isn't just your, you know, run-of-the-mill stereotypical story of a scary asylum. It's that pain and the horror, but also these heroes who come every single day. And really, it's a group of young Black men and women, many of whom are still alive and in their 90s today, who just haven't gotten their flowers, who came and did everything they could to save their own people, even as the state continued to mistreat them, underfund them, and give them less support than any of the other white hospitals around the state. And that history, that founding, and that injustice haunts the asylum all the way until 2004. It's never able to catch up and to be seen and respected in the same way that any of the other hospitals are, even decades after the technical policies and the practices that were most horrific at the very beginning, even after they end, the challenges persist. And so this is a story about all of that, the, the horror, the beauty, the heroes and the villains. And I think it'll make a lot of people who have family experiences in this system, who have felt shut out by it themselves, who maybe are struggling with their own mental health. My hope is that Crownsville's story will be a really American story that makes people feel less alone. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I'm not naive, Antonia, in asking this question, but what does this story say to us about the humanity of black people? Well, if you are thinking about that from the perspective of white people, the answer is that they saw us as less than human. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things I show in the very beginning of the book is how white doctors would write publicly in medical journals and in letters to each other, debating their different theories of the minds and bodies of black people. And one of their theories early on during slavery is actually that black people are completely immune to mental suffering because they love their masters and they love spending time in the outdoors and slavery is so good for them. Mm. And then as more and more black people become free and they are experiencing trauma after enslavement, they change their hypothesis and they say, oh, well, actually black people can't handle freedom. And they even come up with fake pseudoscientific medical terminology to refer to this so-called disease of black people that can't handle being free. And that those ideas, those beliefs about, about black people inform the decision to segregate them and to keep them away from white patients at all costs. And so it, it, you see very much how in the 20th century, the legacy of slavery informs the way that doctors interact with, that they talk about, that they write about black people. And when you see today that there are still studies that show that white doctors view black people as 
being able to handle different levels of pain as being less deserving of certain pain medications uh, or therapies. You can see the roots of that in a system that said that they're fundamentally different, that they deserve less, and that they're not fully human. Mm-hmm. One of the things, uh, and it, it, it is frankly one of the primary things that struck me about your text, and I, this, is a, this is a huge um, compliment to you, um, is that as harrowing a story as you tell, at the epicenter of this story is love. Um, mm. Love of black people for black people, love by black people for other black people. You, 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 um, you, 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 you raised this issue earlier in telling us moments ago about the ways that this uh, uh, asylum had to change when they finally allowed black folk to come work there. But, but just, I wonder if you might just drill down a bit more, though, on the love story at the center of this harrowing tale. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful that you picked up on that, that you felt that as you read the book, because that's a huge part of my heart and why I even embarked on this story, this book in the first place, because I don't want people to just take the horror from it. I also want them to know that their ancestors, that that their loved ones that that were behind them, that they had immense strength and creativity and ingenuity in the face of all of these things that people tried to do to them. And so I I try to tell a lot of the story from the perspective of black women and men who were patients or who were nurses and doctors working with patients and transforming the medical field firsthand. Uh, You know, I tell the story of one woman who's still living in her 90s now named Marie Goff, who comes into the hospital. She's one of the first black women allowed to come work alongside white people. And she starts doing everything she can to bathe patients with her own hands. And she brings washcloths from home. She starts cleaning because the staff has been refusing to hire people who would clean up the asylum. So it's terribly filthy. The stench is horrendous. And she just starts bringing dignity and humanity to patients. Then I tell the story of a patient named Sonia King, who comes to the hospital in the midst of a terrible psychiatric crisis And she's saved not by medication, not by an experiment or a therapy, but because there are a bunch of black women who happen to work there, who grew up with her, who wrap their arms around her and show her love every single day. And they walk with her outside and they call her parents and keep them updated on her recovery. And it's that kind of community that I try to show in the book can make all the difference in mental health outcomes for the black community. And it's part of the reason so many suffer now, because if we don't talk about what we're going through, and if we don't have doctors who look like us and love us, it's really hard to find that nowadays. Mm. Uh, What's your hope for how this story about Crownsville will challenge us to to rethink um, race and, and sanity? Um, I, I say all the time on this program that at our best, um, uh, we are a show that's about challenging folk to reexamine the assumptions they hold. We try to help folk expand their inventory of ideas. But it seems to me that this this um, this book, uh, which is a polemic of sorts to me, um, is a way um, or is an opportunity for us to rethink uh, the notion of race in mental health, the notion of race and sanity. Um, h- how might we best do that as a society? I think there's a few things. The first is I think people should look really closely at the ties between the mental health care system and the incarceration system, prisons and jails. Mm. In many communities around the United States, California has a lot of them. Your local 
the primary provider of mental health care services is a jail or a prison mm. instead of a clinic or a hospital. And if you are a certain type of person, you're more likely to have interactions with cops and courts instead of therapists and healers. And if we want something better than that, if we want to imagine a better world or we want to ask our local leaders to support programs that would change that outcome, this book, my hope is that it helps you see the roadmap where all of this went wrong, why the system was built this way. And I'd argue that in order to know what to do in the future, how to fix things going forward, you need to know your history. Mm -hmm. And then I think on an interpersonal level, my hope is that this book reminds people that just because so much of mental illness is a mystery, you know, there's a lot about the biology or the genetics that we're still learning. It doesn't mean you can throw your hands up and just say, okay, well, I guess we're just going to have these crises. We're going to have Americans who live out on the streets and who, you know, suffer very publicly. You know, the book shows you in the work of these black clinicians and nurses and doctors that if you build better communities, if you have parks and safe spaces and safe schools and funding for these things, that you can mitigate people develop ever even having to develop mental illness. You can solve a lot of the child mental health crisis that we're seeing in this country right now with better community supports. And so I don't want people to throw their hands up. I want them to read this book, the painful and the beautiful parts, and to know that they could wake up tomorrow and fight for things or even just integrate new actions, new levels of kindness and patience for others in their own day-to-day -day actions mm -hmm. that would make our country a better place and give people, black people, the mental health care system they deserve. Here again, uh, no naivete, Antonia, but why Why do you think that link uh, exists, uh, and for that matter, persists, that link you spoke of a moment ago between mental health and our carceral state? Well, what we see happen at the at, toward the end of the book and toward the end of the 20th century is that the government starts to shut down asylums like Crownsville all around the country and push patients out to community mental health care. And they promise that they're going to build all these clinics, but they never do. And what we see happen is that communities welcome back white patients and white patients who have more money are able to go see private doctors and get the medications and the help that they need. But for black families and for poor Americans, the system is not there to help them out. And so they're pushed out of the hospital. And who comes to pick them up? The police. And I show there's this messy period toward the end of the 20th century where Crownsville is starting to shrink, but it's still open. And the police are starting to bring people to Crownsville who aren't mentally ill at all. I tell a story of a six-year-old boy who gets brought to Crownsville by multiple police officers in a car. And he arrives and he's wearing a karate uniform. And the staff are like, what's going on here? And it turns out that he misbehaved in karate class. So the police picked him up, a six-year-old and brought him to an asylum full of adults. Think about that, what that says about the way that those systems see young black boys and the way that they see, you know, the mental health care system in the first place. And I ask in the book for people to wrestle with this, what's the difference between the world telling you that you're incurable, that you're you know, a patient and that you deserve to be locked up in an asylum. And what's the difference between that and being told that you're irredeemable or you should be behind bars and you're a criminal? And in what ways have these definitions actually mm -hmm. been mixed up? 
And how does that affect black people mm. all across our country? We've got two minutes left here. Here's my exit question. Um, given the historical narrative that you lay out in this uh, in this book, Madness, Race, and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum, um, given that story, uh, why would any black family these days choose to uh, uh, to uh, to send a loved one uh, to one of these institutions? Um, is there evidence that suggests that they've gotten better? Well, most of these big institutions, you know, of the size that Crownsville was with at one point almost 3,000 patients living in it, most of them have shut down. And so in most of your local communities, there are the emergency room, there's some clinics or group homes where you could send a loved one who's suffering. But often we hear that there are investigations and scandals that happen in those as well. That's why I, I am telling this history, because I want people to imagine something better for us, or, but really for everyone. This is a system that has left more than just Black people with nothing. And that should outrage us. And I think it's one of the reasons why I think the best thing that black families could do right now is talk more about their mental health, about their mental well-being, create trusting relationships through generations so that your young ones, your grandkids have the confidence and the trust to tell you if they're struggling as so many young people are struggling right now, because that's the best way to stop and early, you know, that early identification of someone who's struggling and suffering, that can make all the difference so that that person never ends up in an emergency, never ends up in a place like Crownsville. And so that, those lines of communication, until our politicians take action and they change and they fund the larger system, that communication is the piece that the Black community can control right now. And so it's one of the reasons I write about my own mental health and my family's experiences in the book, because I felt like, mm -hmm. all right, if I'm going to ask other people to talk more, I should share my story. I should put my heart out there and maybe it'll make other people feel confident enough to share their stories, too. Black America and indeed this country owes Antonia Hilton a debt for doing the hard work, the heavy lifting, uh, the righteous work um, to bring forth this story of Crownsville State Hospital, formerly Maryland's Hospital for the Negro Insane. The book is called Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Antonia, thank you. Congratulations. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this uh, on this program today. All the best to you. Thank you so much. Good to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.